So I just received my Beta Brand dress yoga pants and I've been wearing them constantly. They have all the things you would normally look for in a pair of pants. They have a faux zipper and pockets so there are no fiddly parts that will stick out or stick into you and make you feel uncomfortable. They have belt hoops so you can accessorise with your favourite belt. You prefer bootleg? They have it. Straight leg? They have you covered. I got the leggings and they are super comfortable and stylish. And with all the colours you could want, black, navy, grey and khaki, and with seasonal and limited additional colours released monthly, there really is something for everyone's style. As I said, I really love my Beta brand yoga pants. The fit is perfect and they are true to size, so it wasn't hard to buy them online without trying them on. They aren't quite like my other leggings. They are thicker material, which is perfect for the Australian winter coming up, and they are stylish enough so I can wear them to work. And that's why I started wearing Beta Brand Dress Pant Yoga Pants. Visit betabrand.com and use our code INSIGHT to get 20% off yours. Millions of women agree these are the most comfortable pants you'll ever wear to work. That's betabrand.com, B-E-T-A-B-R-A-N-D.com. Use our code INSIGHT and get 20% off your dress pant yoga pants. Natalia Zakarenko, the daughter of immigrants, would rise to fame when she was just a child, starring in Miracle on 34th Street in 1947. Having changed her name to the more marketable Natalie Wood, she would star in 20 movies as a child before making a successful transition to the industry as an adult. Her name has recently made the news again when the Los Angeles Sheriff's Department said in early 2018 that her husband, Robert Wagner, was named a person of interest in her 1981 drowning death. Welcome to Insight. I'm Charlie, and with me today is Allie. How are you, Allie? I'm doing well. How did CrimeCon go? CrimeCon was amazing. I met the Dateline guys I wanted to meet, Keith Morrison and Josh Mankiewicz, in a bar. And I don't think I've ever taken pictures that make me look so happy as I was in that moment. But it was great to meet listeners, see people wearing our T-shirt. It was totally surreal and hanging out with other podcasters. It was great. There is a true crime-specific podcast festival going on in Chicago in July. So mark your calendars, July 2019. We'll have all the information later. But, I mean, I can't even think anyone who's not going to be there. There's been such a huge outpouring of support, and I hear that you're going to make the trek over for that. Yes, I am. I'm very excited. This is our second anniversary episode, and I cannot believe we have been doing the show for two years already. I should have bought you flowers. I know. I came here empty handed. (laughs) I have a script for you, though. We put it to a vote as to what topic we should cover for this special milestone episode, and the listeners have spoken. Overwhelmingly, you wanted us to talk about the death of actress Natalie Wood. Because of recent developments in the case, there's been a lot more coverage again. I feel like this is one of those stories that gets covered very regularly. 
The two main sources of this episode are two books that basically each tell a different side of the story. Natalie Wood, A Life by Gavin Lambert is a fantastic biography and promotes the official ruling in Natalie's death that Natalie Wood likely slipped off a swim step on her boat and accidentally drowned. The other book is called Goodbye Natalie, Goodbye Splendor by Marty Rooley. She's a longtime friend of Dennis Deverne, who was the captain of the boat, owned by Natalie Wood and her husband, Robert Wagner. Now, everyone called Robert Wagner RJ, so that's what we're going to call him in this episode. This book was published in 2006, and it's Dennis's version of what happened that night, and the revelation that he says he lied to investigators initially. The book pretty plainly points the finger at RJ's involvement in Natalie's death. And the authors don't just conflict on the details of Natalie's death, but also on her upbringing. The Lambert biography portrays Natalie's childhood as chaotic, with this controlling mother and a father who was described by Natalie's oldest sister as nice when sober and violent when drunk and he was regularly drunk. But the author of the Dennis Deverne book has put it on her blog that Natalie was incredibly close to her parents and that they actually had a good relationship. So these books are just both on each end of the spectrum, which made them really good for researching this episode. In reading what others around Natalie have said in interviews, it's true Natalie loved her parents, but it's also true her upbringing was difficult that's not uncommon. And we'll start there and talk about her childhood. Natalie was born to parents Nick and Maria. Nick was from the Ukraine and had fled with his family to the US through Canada after his father was killed when he was 10. Maria was from South Siberia. During the Russian Civil War, Maria's family also saw a lot of violence firsthand and her father was also killed. The remaining family went to China as refugees. Maria then immigrated to San Francisco as a married woman with her 18-month-old daughter, Olga. But there she found out her husband, who had gone to America ahead of her, he had moved on with another woman. They remained legally married but had separate romantic lives until Maria divorced him in order to marry Nikolai Zakharenko and he shortly after changed his name to Nicholas Gurdon. She was pregnant with Natalie when she and Nick married, and it is said in the biography by Gavin Lambert that Nick is not Natalie's biological father, although this isn't something anyone knows and others have disputed that fact. Natalie was born Natalia Zakarenko on July 20, 1938, and that's when her older half-sister was 11. From an early age, though, she goes by the name Natasha Gurdon, and that's the name that would follow her into Hollywood. Eight years later, the family would be complete with a third daughter when Slepvana was born. She too would enter the movie industry as a teenager, and she changed her name and has since been known as Lana Wood. At the age of four, Natalie had a bit part in the short film Happy Land. In the movie, all she does is drop an ice cream cone and then she's carried away. And even though her role is very small, those who worked with her were charmed by her and kept her mother informed of other opportunities as they came up. 
The family moved to Los Angeles to follow Maria's dream of turning Natalie into a movie star. Maria had some aspirations towards fame herself, and when they never panned out, she looked towards Natalie to make up for it. Maria believed that Hollywood stars were similar to royalty, and that's what you should aspire to. The move to Los Angeles didn't launch Natalie's career immediately, but it didn't take long. Unfortunately, Maria put a lot of pressure on Natalie, who was just a small child. She was putting the family's entire future on Natalie's career. And more than this, she told Natalie this. As an adult, Natalie would say that when she was a kid, she was afraid her family would starve if she didn't earn enough money. That's a lot to put on a little kid. Natalie's first role after moving to L.A. was with Orson Welles in Tomorrow is Forever, where her hair was dyed, and this is when her name was changed to Natalie Wood. Natalie said in later interviews that she objected to her name being changed, but she was a rule-following type of child, which also made her easy to work with on movie sets. So if her mother or a director told her she had to do something, she would just do it. Natalie got her big break being cast in Miracle on 34th Street, which is a Christmas classic. Her character was a young eight-year-old who didn't believe in Santa Claus, but learned to believe after meeting Kris Kringle. The movie was meant to be a lighthearted film, and its success was actually unexpected. She was incredibly talented, even as a young child, and audiences were impressed with her, as were the studios. And she was signed to a seven-year deal that earned her $800 a week. At 10, Natalie starred in a movie called The Green Promise. There is a scene where Natalie was supposed to run across a bridge during a storm, and the bridge would collapse into the water below when Natalie was safely on the other side. It was supposed to be a close-call, suspenseful situation, This was shot in a studio, so it was a fairly controlled environment, but the rigged bridge collapsed too early. Natalie was still on it. She fell into the water and broke her wrist during the fall. And worse than that, Maria pushed Natalie to complete the shoot rather than receive medical attention. She had this idea that Natalie, do I need to remind everyone, is a child, should push through and prove herself as though she were an adult actress. Natalie would go on to wear bracelets on that wrist to cover up the bump from the poorly healed break. There was another separate situation similar to this. She was filming a different movie and she was playing the daughter of Betty Davis. Natalie learnt that her character was meant to swim at one point in the movie She didn't want to be in the water if she didn't have to, so Betty Davis comes to her rescue and organises a stunt double to do that scene. This incident with the water, coupled with Maria's own fear of water, fueled Natalie's lifelong fear, and this included having nightmares of drowning. And Maria, who very clearly had trouble drawing boundaries between herself and her child, told Natalie that a psychic had told her that Natalie would drown in dark water. There were other incidents, more minor ones on set that involved water that distressed Natalie and reinforced her fear. And this is not some apocryphal storytelling added later on after she died by drowning. This fear has been well documented in interviews with Natalie 
and those who knew her for most of her life, including her sister Lana. You can actually see interviews with her on YouTube where she mentions her fear of water, how she doesn't like being in water. Eventually, Natalie began outgrowing the roles the studio wanted her to play. She played the precocious child so well, but she was getting to be 11 and 12, and they were still wanting her to play eight-year-olds. Her height and build were making it nearly impossible, and in one role, she actually looks almost silly with the bangs and pigtails designed to make her look younger when she was clearly too tall for the role. It wasn't until she was 16 that she would get away from this. She was cast in Rebel Without a Cause as Judy, and for this she received an Academy Award nomination for her role. But she had to make another transition, and this one would be the rougher on her career. She had to go from the teenage star to the more serious actress. She then starred in Splendour in the Grass opposite Warren Beatty, and this would give her her second Academy Award nomination. This role, though, in Splendour in the Grass is what jump-started her career that led her to performances in West Side Story, Love with a Proper Stranger, and Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice. She also starred in Gypsy, which is a movie about a burlesque star named Gypsy Rose, and she had a controlling stage mother. I think this casting is pretty much on the nose in that regard, but it is a personal favourite of mine. I think I watched it weekly growing up. Natalie went on a date with Robert Wagner, known as RJ, on her 18th birthday, and he was 26. Just a year later, in 1957, they were married. They separated less than four years later, even though the media had billed them as the happiest couple in Hollywood with this fairy tale life. According to her sister, Alana, an affair with Warren Beatty was one of the main reasons the marriage ended, but others have said Natalie didn't begin her relationship with Warren Beatty until after the marriage was over. But even if the relationship with Beatty didn't start until after, multiple people have reported that there was jealousy on RJ's part and he would see them on set together. You know, Beatty would have his arm around Natalie and that fueled some jealousy. Natalie had a number of relationships with other famous men prior to her marriage to RJ and then after. And in 1969, she remarried producer Richard Gregson after dating for about two years. But the marriage ended abruptly in 1971. Natalie found out he was having an affair. But together, in 1970, they had a daughter who they named Natasha. And that was Natalie's childhood nickname. RJ had also remarried in this time and had a daughter with his second wife. And then he also got divorced again. So now in 1972, RJ and Natalie found themselves both single and they reconnected. It's said that it was when he found out that she had separated from Richard Gregson that he was calling over to her again. They dated for about six months this time before remarrying. And then two years later, a third daughter joined the family and they named her Courtney. She would be their only child together. Natalie was overjoyed at motherhood, and she would soon be in the position that so many women are in, Allie and I included, in wanting to both be a full-time mother and also advancing her career. She would generally only take roles that didn't take her away from her children. 
Because RJ had found success in this time as a leading man on television, he was making enough money that Natalie could afford financially to be picky on which role she took. And she was only looking for solid work. She didn't want to make movies with no impact or take on roles that had no depth. She was about to make another transition in her career, and this one was not going to go as well as she had hoped. She had gone from innocent child to rebellious teen to romantic leading lady, and now it was time for her to transition into being an older actress. And I kind of say this with a laugh because here we are, she's in her mid to late 30s, and we're calling her an older actress, but the roles offered were losing quality. She was a classic beauty still, but she was seen as too old by the industry for many of the leading roles. I guess this is off topic a bit, but you see that in Hollywood now, that actresses of around that age, their opportunities do become lesser and lesser, where men of the same age still get the the leading man romantic leads. It's interesting, the double standard. So a 40-year-old man, they will pair him with a 22-year-old actress as his wife and portray that, whereas they're not casting a 40-year-old woman as his wife. I mean, we do still see that today. And thankfully, we have some actresses who have really broken that ceiling. But here's Natalie in the 1970s working to try to break that age limit. At the time of her death, Natalie was working on what would be her final movie, a movie called Brainstorm. She was playing the wife of Christopher Walken's character. And Christopher Walken, he had an established career already, but they had never met before. In the Lambert biography, it says she was attracted to him, whether it was to him himself or maybe the freedom he represented, we don't know. He was married and still is to the same woman, But they've never had any children, so he could choose his film and stage roles without a lot of restrictions. With Natalie's age becoming an issue in Hollywood, her desire to continue this balance between motherhood and a career, she was struggling. In 1981, when Natalie died, her girls were 11 and 7, so they were still quite young, but not babies anymore. And this role I read that Natalie wasn't really into. It was not the kind of role she was used to where there was a script that you followed. It was more casual, ad-lib type of story, and that wasn't what she felt she was suited to. Now that we are through all of the background information... We are going to get into the incident that led to Natalie Wood's death, the various stories behind it. But first, a word from a sponsor. Hiring. Every business needs great people and a better way to find them. Something better than posting your job online and just praying for the right people to use it. ZipRecruiter learns what you're looking for. It identifies people with the right experience and invites them to apply for your job. And it's these invitations that have revolutionised how you find your next hire. In fact, 80% of employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through their site in just one day. But ZipRecruiter doesn't stop there. They even spotlight the strongest applications you receive so you never miss a great match. The right candidates are out there and ZipRecruiter is how you find them. 
Right now, our listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash site. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash site. One more time, ZipRecruiter.com slash site. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. So that brings us to November 26, 1981, and Natalie and Robert have been married for nine-ish years now. It is Thanksgiving in the US, and the Wagners hosted their parents and some close friends. They'd invited some friends to join them the following day on their boat, the Splendour, named after Natalie's movie, Splendour in the Grass. But it was going to be a wet and stormy weekend, so everyone turned them down except for Christopher Walken. That the boat was named after the movie she made with Warren Beatty as her marriage to RJ fell apart, her first marriage. I have to assume they didn't have an affair because why would he name his boat after the movie where his wife had an affair? That doesn't make any sense to me. So that makes me think there may have been jealousy, but not an affair. I was going to say that, especially for a man who is extremely jealous to then name the boat after the movie your wife has an affair in, it doesn't seem to work. That doesn't really fit. But we do have to set the scene of this boat a little bit. And the first thing we have to do is give you an idea of the size. It is a yacht, but when I hear yacht, I always picture like Aristotle Onassis's yacht. That thing was like 100 meters long. And that might just be me, but let's manage our image a little. The Splendor was much smaller than this. It's more like 18 meters, which is not a small boat, but it's also not cruise ship size. There were four staterooms, one for Natalie and RJ, one for their girls when they were along, but they would also use it for guests when the girls weren't there. There was one for the captain, Dennis Deverne, and one for guests. And Christopher Walken was staying in the one for guests, and the girls' room was empty. It was Friday, November 27, around noon, when RJ, Natalie, Christopher, and Dennis left for Catalina Island. On the southern part of the island was the main town called Avalon, so they anchored and took the dinghy to the island for shopping, followed by a trip to the bar. Dennis stayed on the Splendour to prepare dinner for the evening. The three on the island had been drinking and they were intoxicated. They were headed back to the Splendour around 9pm and Natalie didn't want to get into the dinghy because of the choppy water in the dark, but they finally convinced her to do it. The three had dinner on the Splendour and had more alcohol. Christopher, though, had been seasick for much of the day and he headed down to his stateroom to lie down. He said he heard some type of argument between RJ and Natalie from above his room. And Dennis said the argument was because RJ wanted to move the boat to Karma Waters about an hour north and Natalie wanted him to wait until the morning, till daylight. Christopher said the argument lasted around 20 minutes and there wasn't any actual yelling, but Natalie asked Dennis to take her to shore. At this point, you have to know there were other issues going on, because think about it. Her argument was she didn't want RJ to move the yacht in the dark, so she was going to go get in a rubber dinghy and go to shore in the dark. That doesn't make sense unless you've been in a relationship before and you've had those moments where your argument isn't actually about the thing you're arguing about. RJ and Natalie were already having tension that weekend because of Christopher Walken. And I say that like it's his fault, but that's not what I mean. Natalie's infatuation with him 
or what he represented and her flirting with him. It's been said by people who observed them on the island that they were openly flirting. RJ's jealousy played a factor in this. These are the core issues I think they're arguing about. And the fuel was the alcohol. But regardless of the underlying cause of the arguing, Natalie wanted off the boat, and she had Dennis bring her to Catalina Island, where she booked two hotel rooms. But she was upset enough that she had Dennis stay in her room with her. The next day, it was clear that alcohol played a role in the previous night's events. Natalie was somewhat disoriented when she went to check out. This is according to the front desk clerk at the hotel. She forgot a room number. She tried to pay for the rooms a second time because she had already paid the night before and forgot. She also was asking about transportation off Catalina Island to go back to the mainland. She called a friend and left a message saying she wasn't sure what happened the night before, but then called another friend and said she was heading back to the Splendor to try to talk to RJ. But if they couldn't resolve whatever was going on, she was going to go back to the mainland. Natalie and Dennis returned to the Splendor and Natalie made breakfast for everyone. She agreed that RJ could move the boat and they went north along the coast of Catalina Island to Isthmus Cove where they anchored off the shore. In one account, everyone went to their staterooms for naps, but Natalie and Christopher woke before RJ and Dennis, so they headed to the dinghy to the island. When RJ and Dennis woke up, they found a note from them and called for a shore boat to come get them and meet up with them on the island. In the account Dennis gives in his book, Natalie and Christopher left with RJ's knowledge in a water taxi, and he and RJ were the only two who went to take a nap, and then they took the dinghy to the shore to meet up with Natalie and Christopher. With RJ already dealing with jealousy issues, tensions had to have had built when he walked into the bar to see Natalie and Christopher drinking together where they had already been for a couple of hours. But it's unclear between the two tellings if RJ knew ahead of time that Natalie and Christopher were going out alone or not. At 7pm, the group moved from the bar to the restaurant for dinner where they had more to drink and then they headed back to the Splendour all together at 10pm. According to Dennis, RJ had been insisting for a while to go back to the boat and Natalie had refused and that caused the tensions at the table to build even more. Because of the amount of drinking, none of the men can recall 100% every detail of what followed. We know they were intoxicated to the point that the restaurant manager called Harbour Patrol when they left to make sure that they made it back to the Splendour safely. The official story is that back on the Splendour, the arguing continued in the saloon or the main cabin. Either Christopher Walken brought up that Natalie should put her career first or RJ complained about Natalie's career taking her away from the family too much. However it was brought up, the two men started discussing or arguing her career choices in front of her. At some point, RJ picked up a wine bottle and smashed it down, breaking it, though he would tell the police that it broke from rough seas. Christopher stood up and walked out onto the deck for a few minutes, then returned to the saloon. It's unclear how long he stayed before he went to bed, because, as we said, alcohol. The memories of the time frames vary. He either stood there long enough that RJ apologized, or he just walked immediately back to his room. 
While Christopher was on deck, Natalie told RJ she wouldn't stand for that type of behavior and went to her stateroom. RJ and Dennis continued drinking, just the two of them. It was Natalie's routine to get ready for bed and then come out to say goodnight to everyone. She hadn't come out, so RJ went to their shared stateroom to check on her, and she wasn't there. He and Dennis searched the boat. Perhaps Natalie had gone to sleep in the girls' empty stateroom to get away from RJ, and during the search they noticed the dinghy was missing, and this would have been around 1.30 in the morning. RJ says that he assumed she had taken the dinghy to shore, even though he admits it didn't make sense. While Natalie had taken the dinghy out herself, she never would have done it at night because of her fear of the dark water. Also, this was a motorised dinghy. As we said before, this was a personal yacht, not a cruise ship. If she had started the motor on the dinghy, they would have heard it in the saloon and they said they heard nothing. But what other conclusion can he reach when his wife and the dinghy were missing? So RJ called for a water taxi to take him to Ismith's Cove to look for her. He turned around and went back to the Splendour when he couldn't find her or the dinghy docked in the cove. He used the radio to alert other boats in the area that someone was missing in a dinghy, and then he called the Coast Guard. By 2am, Harbour Patrol and the Coast Guard were searching for her. Before we talk more about the search and what they found and new theories that came up, we need to take one last break for a word from a sponsor. I have good news for you and for me. The Fab Fit Fun Summer Box is now on pre-sale. The boxes are going to start shipping on May 23rd. I'm very excited to get my next box. This is a seasonal subscription box for women to treat themselves and discover new products. You are getting full-size fashion products, beauty, home, fitness, and wellness delivered four times a year for just $49.99 a box. The last box I got had a hair conditioning product, which was fantastic because I have dry hair. I also have dry skin, which is why I'm very excited for what's coming up in the next box. This is a spoiler. The Foreo Luna Fofo will be in the summer box. It is a value of $89, and this is a brand new Foreo product that just launched. For those of you who don't know what this is, it's a cleansing device, but it's a smart cleansing device. It measures your skin's moisture levels and comes up with this customized cleansing solution. You use an app with it to give you personalized tips on your skincare. It is skincare taken to the next level. You can sign up for Fab Fit Fun today and get your summer box. The Fab Fit Fun summer box is limited supply. And another spoiler, these boxes always sell out. So use my code INSIGHT to get $10 off your first box. So go to fabfitfun.com, sign up, and start getting the box for a life well-lived. Use the promo code INSIGHT to get $10 off your first box. That's over $200 worth of product for only $39.99. Go to FabFitFun.com, use my code INSIGHT, and get $10 off your first FabFitFun box. The dinghy was found around 5.30 in the morning, about two miles away. The oars were still in position and the engine was off, so it was pretty clear no one had used the dinghy. Just over two hours later, a search boat would see something red bobbing in the water, and that was Natalie. She was wearing a flannel nightgown and blue wool socks. The red item was her red down jacket. At the age of 43, Natalie Wood was dead. 
RJ and Christopher Walken left the island for the mainland after giving very brief statements to authorities, and Dennis was left to identify Natalie's body for RJ. And by all reports, RJ was extremely distraught. A longer statement was taken while at his home a few days later. The early statements from all three men on board were along the lines of, we were having a pleasant weekend and we don't know what happened. But later, RJ would admit that it wasn't a pleasant weekend and he and Natalie had been fighting. Just two weeks after the incident, it was officially ruled an accidental drowning. The autopsy showed some bruises and abrasions that could have been from slipping on the water. It's also been described that most of them were just kind of the bruises you would get throughout the day. But this has definitely raised some suspicions for those who are inclined to believe that Natalie didn't slip into the water. Toxicology showed that Natalie was drunk. 1.04, which was 0.04 above the legal drinking limit back then. She also had prescription pills in her system, including a painkiller, a sleep aid, and an anti-nausea motion sickness medication. So any or all of these could have exacerbated the effects of the alcohol. There is a conflict in one reported item. I say one. There's a conflict in pretty much everything we've said. But the dinghy, it has said that it showed scratch marks that the medical examiner has theorized were made by Natalie after she fell into the water but tried to get into the dinghy or was just clinging to it, hoping help would come. But there's another report that says this is untrue. There were never any scratch marks. A few days later, ear witnesses come forward. They were a couple from a nearby boat who said they heard a woman calling for help shortly after 11pm and a man saying something like, OK, we'll come get you. They said the woman called for help for some time and they tried to see what was going on. They even called the sheriff's department. So this wasn't just one of those random screams people sometimes report hearing. But the couple also heard loud music playing and thought maybe there was a party going on and this was more of a joke. They have said authorities never formally interviewed them and their account seems to have been dismissed or viewed as mistaken. But there is still a massive hole in this version, to be honest. Actually, all versions have this hole, and that's how did the dinghy get untied and how did Natalie get in the water? No one claims to have actually seen this happen. One theory is that she decided to take the dinghy to the island on her own. But Natalie was experienced enough to know that you don't untie a dinghy completely and then try to get into it. You get into it first and then untie it. Otherwise, you're trying to keep the dinghy from floating away while trying to step onto it. The second issue is that Natalie was wearing her nightgown and socks. She wouldn't have gone anywhere in public looking like that. Part of her job was to look like Natalie Wood, the Hollywood movie star, even at one in the morning after a fight with her husband. Yes, she was drunk, but this theory means she would have had to have done the exact opposite of what she always did. Another theory is that she was trying to tie up the dinghy. And this idea is backed by other regulars on the Splendor. The rope holding the dinghy to the yacht would occasionally loosen a bit, just giving enough slack that the dinghy would thump against the side where Natalie's stateroom was. 
This noise was annoying to her. So one of RJ's routine evening duties was to check the dinghy and tighten the ropes. A quick side note, Dennis Deverne, the captain, says this was actually one of his duties, not RJ's. If Natalie was annoyed by the noise but still angry with RJ, perhaps she did go down to secure it herself. She untied the rope in order to tie it up tighter, perhaps, but then she slipped on the slick swim step and fell into the water. If she hit her head on the step when she went into the water, she may have been unconscious, therefore unable to swim back to the step, or she was just intoxicated. So that would have prevented her from getting her senses back after the slip quickly enough to get back to the boat. The red jacket she was wearing would have been quite heavy waterlogged, and it either didn't occur to her to take it off or she couldn't get it off. If she was conscious but unable to climb into the dinghy for whatever reason, she could have clung to the dinghy for safety but succumbed to hypothermia and lost consciousness before the dinghy brought her close enough to the shore. The Pacific Ocean, I mean, we think California beaches are really sunny, but the water comes from the north. It is very, very cold. A major issue with this theory And this seems to be a very popular one, but Dennis Deverne says this was essentially impossible. There are actually two ropes that secured the dinghy, and they weren't right next to each other. So to tighten them, it doesn't make sense that she would have untied one, then walked over to the other, untied that, and then tried to tighten them. She would have tightened one, then the other. So if Dennis Deverne is accurate with the way the dinghy was tied up, this theory is impossible. Dennis told the authorities the same story that RJ had told at first, that everything was fine that night. A few years later, he began giving small bits of his story to the press, largely to tabloids and occasionally for money. He says that the argument the night before the incident wasn't just RJ calmly suggesting to move the boat and Natalie objecting before leaving – RJ angrily insisted he was moving the boat and Natalie said she would leave if he moved it. Dennis intervened and RJ eventually apologised and told him to take Natalie to the island for the night. The night of the incident, however, was different. There are actually two versions of Dennis's new account, one in a 2000 Vanity Fair article and the other in his book. Both accounts start the same that RJ had an angry outburst where he grabbed the wine bottle and smashed it, asking Christopher if he was trying to seduce Natalie. Christopher was shaken and got up and walked out to the deck, which is understandable, and Natalie stormed off. Dennis tried to get RJ to stay and calm down, but RJ went down to their stateroom after Natalie. Dennis was left on the deck, which was immediately above the stateroom, and he heard them fighting and throwing things. In his book, Dennis said he knocked on their stateroom door around 11pm, and RJ answered the door, telling him that he'd be out in a minute. Dennis said that he didn't see Natalie, and after RJ closed the door, he heard the door that led to their stateroom to the back deck open, and the fight continued out there. Dennis turned up the music so he wouldn't be eavesdropping on them, but he did hear RJ say something that sounded like he was ordering Natalie off the boat. The music Dennis said he turns up lines up timeline-wise to the music the ear witnesses had heard that led them to believe there was some kind of party. 
The yelling eventually quietened down, so he went to the back deck to check on them and only found RJ disheveled. Their stateroom was a mess and RJ said Natalie was missing and he was looking for her. He sent Dennis to look in the other rooms for her and this would be around 11.30pm. And during this entire thing, Christopher Walken was asleep. RJ prohibited any other searches or notifying anyone she was missing until 1.30 in the morning. So basically, in this version of events, RJ had to have been with Natalie when she went into the water. There is no other conclusion you can reach. And then he waited at least two hours to call for help. In the Vanity Fair article, the sequence was different. After Natalie stormed off, RJ went after her. Dennis heard the fight and heard the ropes on the dinghy being loosened. But instead of Dennis going down to the stateroom, in this version, RJ returned to the bridge around 11.30, again looking disheveled. He and Dennis drank together until 1.30 when RJ said he was going back to check on Natalie, and that's when he told Dennis Natalie was missing. Of course, Dennis didn't see Natalie in this two-hour window, so the implication is that if RJ was involved, he did something to Natalie at 11.30, sat around until 1.30 with Dennis, and then faked finding her missing. Now, this is a huge difference in the story, though. Huge. The story in the book makes it pretty open and shut that RJ was somehow involved. Even if Dennis didn't see him do anything to Natalie, it would be hard to argue RJ didn't at least witness her fall into the water in that scenario. Dennis saw and heard Natalie with RJ, then suddenly Natalie was gone, but RJ was still there. No other conclusion. But the version published in Vanity Fair, there was a good two-hour window between when Dennis last saw Natalie and when he was alerted that she was missing, and it makes it just as likely that RJ left Natalie safe and sound and that she fell into the water after RJ had left her. Everything proceeds similarly to how it's recorded in the police reports. They notified people, except Dennis does say there was this delay in calling for help. He said that RJ wouldn't even let him turn on the boat's spotlight to look for Natalie in the water, and he was resistant to calling the Coast Guard. Now, he says it was something like four hours from when Natalie went missing before the Coast Guard was called. Dennis also admits in another part of the book that RJ was image conscious. And we've seen this before, even with non-stars. If you think back to our Mikkel Biggs case, Mikkel was a missing little girl and her father came under suspicion because he lied to the police about where he was at the time she went missing. Now, he lied to them because he had lied to his wife about where he was and didn't want that coming out. He was trying to protect his image here a little. So if RJ really did believe that Natalie had just gone off in the dinghy on her own after his jealous outburst, he probably wanted to keep the searching low-key. This image of them being the hot Hollywood couple, he didn't want to let that go. But Dennis said that he sat around drinking instead of looking for his wife, and it was more than just wanting to keep a low profile. RJ was pretty much refusing to look for Natalie, and if he hadn't blocked the attempts to search for her, she may have been found before it was too late. But these aren't the only two versions Dennis has allegedly told. Lana Woods, Natalie's little sister, has been insistent that Dennis told her that he saw Natalie in the water and that RJ wouldn't help her, almost as a punishment for her flirting with Christopher Walken. Now, this would make him possibly an accomplice or an accessory. 
Dennis has made some other big accusations in his book, aside from casting blame on RJ for Natalie's death. He says that RJ essentially held him prisoner in the days and months following Natalie's death, and he wouldn't let Dennis leave the home after 10pm, and he had to take his driver with him everywhere. One night in particular, he tried to stay at his girlfriend's house. Dennis says RJ sent two men to physically remove him and bring him back to RJ's home. Dennis said RJ paid for everything and told him that if he ever needed money to let him know. It was never explicitly called hush money, but the book Dennis Deverne contributed to makes it sound like that's more or less what it was. By admission of the book, Dennis first called his friend, author Marty Rooley. After RJ stopped being so close to him as he had been during the two years admittedly after Natalie's death, RJ was selling the splendour where Dennis was then living and Dennis was set to take a cut from the sale of the boat, similar to a real estate agent would do with a house. RJ then decided to donate the splendour, which would cut Dennis out of his commission for selling the boat. Now, it could be seen that Dennis was overcome with guilt over lying to the police, and when RJ cut him off, he felt hurt even deeper and more guilty that he kept the secret for a friend who wasn't deserving of that loyalty. Or it could be seen that RJ had nothing to hide but was moving on with his life, and Dennis was angry or desperate once he no longer had access to the money that came with being a friend or an employee of RJ Wagner. Dennis also puts a lot of his story on two factors. One, that Natalie was afraid of the water, and two, that Natalie never took the dinghy out alone. He explicitly says never, but according to Natalie's former secretary and close friend, Mark Crowley, in a 2011 interview with The Advocate, both of these statements are untrue. Natalie was afraid of being in the water, yes, but she wouldn't have had an overarching fear of the water or else she never would have been on that boat. She loved being on the water and she felt fine on the boat. And she was comfortable with the dinghy. She would leave RJ on the Splendor and take the dinghy to head to shore for shopping. We could argue whether or not she would have taken it at night, especially since that day she had journaled something about the undertow being strong. So we know she was aware of the water conditions, dark water, strong undertow. I mean, I do find it extremely hard to believe that she was attempting to take the dinghy out in those circumstances in a nightgown. But what Dennis says about her never taking the dinghy alone just isn't backed up by what others who were guests and very close to Natalie have said. And we have to remember the night before she did go on to the dinghy in rough waters at night time. And I know she was with someone else, but she did go out the night before. Exactly. Now, I've seen multiple references to an appearance Marty and Dennis made on a show hosted by Gerardo Rivera in 1992. When they thought they were off camera, Marty was recorded encouraging Dennis to say more about what he thinks happened and made a comment about how much money they would make off the book. Now, the video was not available online, so we weren't able to judge it for ourselves or to see what it says exactly, but it definitely gives some backing to the idea that this entire story was less about clearing his conscience and more about making money. It also raises questions if Dennis's information was coached along by his co-author. 
This incident is addressed in Marty and Dennis's book. Marty says the part about making a lot of money at the book being a joke, mocking what the producer kept saying when she was trying to book them for the show. Now, I hesitate to paint Dennis simply as someone who was trying to take advantage of the situation because everything we've read points to him being deeply affected by Natalie's death and that he really did value his relationship with the Wagners. But we can't present his side of the story without giving some of the context that makes people pause at his assertions. The official investigation didn't sit well with some. RJ and Christopher were allowed to leave the island without giving full statements. We know everyone lied about what a pleasant weekend it was, since RJ and Dennis have both admitted that there was arguing. Christopher gave an interview many years later to Playboy magazine, and he seemed to have conflated some events from the two nights on the boat. So while authorities have said he's cooperated every time he's been talked to, the passage of time may have clouded his memory. We have to apply that same question to Dennis Deverne as well, as his story has gotten more detailed with time rather than less. His co-author attributes this to his reluctance to tell the whole story so that he gave it out slowly over time. But it does seem odd, since everything we know about memories is that they are more likely to fade and become distorted with time. They don't sharpen. In the late 1980s, Lana Wood hired a private investigator. She was certainly one who did not believe her sister's death was properly investigated. The PI did not have access to any of the men on the boat, but through interviewing people who knew the couple and saw them that weekend, he believed the death was an accidental death, but not the same scenario as the official one. He believed that the argument had taken place and that Natalie ran and fell overboard. Due to the condition of RJ and Christopher Walken, and admittedly even Dennis Deverne admits that he was drinking that night, they didn't rescue her and didn't call for help immediately, and that letting the dinghy go was a diversion. In November of 2011, the Sheriff's Department announced that they were taking another look at the case due to multiple witnesses and not just Dennis. In 2012, the cause of death was changed from accidental drowning to drowning and other undetermined factors. This is largely because no one was ever really able to establish how she ended up in the water. Changing stories and theories that don't quite fit has made this difficult. In 2013, the coroner released a new report, and one of the biggest developments was a statement that some of the bruising could have happened prior to Natalie going into the water. This points out, to me anyway, a flaw in the original investigation. They took the word of the men on the boat that everything was fine prior to Natalie going into the water, so they assumed the bruises were from her fall or possibly for her trying to get into the dinghy. But with the information that there was arguing going on that entire weekend, not just that night, they've officially said now that it's possible those bruises were from before she went into the water. And this is what made them change the official cause of death to include other undetermined factors. They also note the lack of head trauma. So the idea that she slipped and hit her head is not a reasonable one. However, they don't believe she survived long after being in the water. 
Unfortunately, because this was ruled an accident, evidence wasn't preserved. The dinghy, which may or may not have scratch marks on it, that is gone now. No fingernail scrapings were taken from Natalie to show if there were any rubber or anything else under her fingernails. RJ wasn't photographed for signs of injury, which may have given evidence for or against the idea that there was a physical fight. Cold case investigators are always dependent on the initial investigation, and in this case, the initial investigation leaned so heavily towards an accident from the start that there wasn't much of the evidence you would normally need in a homicide investigation. Until recently, investigators have insisted none of the three men are suspects, and they maintain none are suspects. But in February of 2018, a lieutenant with the sheriff's department said that Robert Wagner was a person of interest more now than he was before. And much of that is owing to the fact that he was the last one to see Natalie alive, regardless of what story you happen to believe. And that is a consistent between all versions. RJ was the last one to see Natalie. RJ has not spoken to authorities during this new investigation. There are some outlying theories of the incident that have come up, as happens when there are gaps in the official story. They include Christopher Walken and Robert Wagner being the ones in a relationship and Natalie freaking out when she found out. There is no evidence of that. There is evidence to the contrary. Other theories blame Christopher Walken or Dennis or both. None of them really seem based on anything except conjecture. I had a bunch of notes on my thoughts on this case. And now talking back and forth with you about it and going over different scenarios in our head, None of what I originally thought is what I think now. I thought maybe something else could have been involved, but now working through it step by step, I think there is a good chance that it was an unfortunate accident. We know Natalie was fine to go on the boat, even though it wasn't probably preferred, but if she just had a major fight with her husband, she just wanted to get away from him. She may have gotten to the boat not thinking clearly. She may have slipped off it. Whether or not they saw her do that, we may never know who was actually involved or not involved that night. I don't think we'll ever know the full story. There are just too many moving parts here. I agree. At this point, it is impossible to know what happened. I have a hard time with pretty much every theory. There's something that proves them all wrong. But whether you believe Natalie slipped into the water unseen or RJ knew she was in the water and didn't render aid or if you believe that he threw her in the water, whatever theory you believe, I think it's clear to everyone that two weeks would never have been enough time to conduct a thorough investigation. A woman is found bruised in the water, and they were just willing to accept the story told to them by the rich and powerful men on the boat. The questioning done was at a surface level, and Dennis says pressure wasn't exerted on anyone on the boat during those two weeks. If any of Dennis's variations to the story are true, I think he probably would have cracked if there was more pressure, even six months or a year later, but the investigation was over in two weeks. Immediately after Natalie's death, one of RJ's immediate fears was in regards to his stepdaughter, Natasha, because we do need to remember there were two little girls. Since she was a toddler, 
He had been raising her. Her father lived in London. But when Gregson flew to the U.S. after Natalie's death, he spoke to Natasha and he decided not to further traumatize the child by taking her away from her family and her home. So Robert Wagner raised Natasha and Courtney together, and Natasha spent her summers with her biological father. And Robert Wagner remarried actress Jill St. John, and they are still married. Natalie Wood would have turned 80 years old this year. Thank you for listening. You can find us on Facebook at Insight Podcast, Twitter at Insightful Pod, Instagram at Insight Pod, or email us at insightfulpod at gmail.com. You can also support the show at patreon.com slash insightpod. And a special thank you to Chesgrave Music for our new custom theme.